What's that like, though? All of a sudden, you're on the cover of magazines. I mean, I can look outside right now, and there's girls out there screaming for you guys right now. What is that like, really, seriously? To be honest. At the end of 1996, Alex Rodriguez was coming off a historic age 20 season when he'd hit 358 with a 414 on base percentage and a 631 slugging. He led the league in doubles, runs scored, and total bases. And yet the season ended disappointingly, with the Mariners missing the playoffs and A-Rod falling one vote short of winning the American League MVP award. Meanwhile, there was another shortstop in the American League who was winning trophies, both for himself and his team. Across the country, on the New York Yankees, a kid named Derek Jeter won Rookie of the Year in 1996, and his team won the World Series. The shortstop, number two, Derek Jeter. Now, in basically every individual metric, Jeter's 96 season was worse than A-Rod's. His batting average was worse, he hit for less power, he stole fewer bases while also getting caught more. His defense was nowhere near as good. But he played for the New York Yankees, and his team won the World Series. These two basic facts would come to haunt Alex for his entire career. No matter what he as an individual could do, he was never going to be a bigger star than Jeter as long as those two things were true. Eventually, it would poison the relationship between the two of them. But that didn't happen yet. In 1996, A-Rod and Jeter were still in the bromance phase of their relationship. They were so similar as the top shortstop prospects in baseball. Jeter was a little older, having been drafted the year before A-Rod in the hype around Rodriguez before the 1993 draft. A lot of the coverage actually referred to him as like Jeter, but even better. So if the two were rivals, they were friendly rivals. They had first met when Alex was being drafted, and Jeter had given him some advice about dealing with the press and selecting an agent. And they each followed the other as they progressed through the minor leagues. A-Rod's ascent was slightly quicker, but 1996 was really the coming out party for both of them. Rodriguez's stint in 95 meant he wasn't technically eligible for the Rookie of the Year award that year, allowing Jeter to claim it unanimously, but it was the first year as a starter for both of them. They each talked about checking the box scores every morning to see how the other did and how much they admired the other. And it wasn't all talk either. A-Rod's teammates actually ribbed him for how much he talked about Jeter, and the two stayed in each other's homes on road trips into the other guy's city. In 1999, a brawl broke out during a Yankees-Mariners game in Seattle, and Jeter and A-Rod were seen on the periphery of the action, laughing and joking together. This probably seems like a silly thing to get upset about now, but at the time, some old school baseball guys were peeved. I would have loved to tune into Mike and the Man talk that day. (laughs) I think they probably defended Jeter. But you were supposed to defend your teammates during a baseball fight, not joke with your friends on the other team. In fact, Jeter's teammate, Chad Curtis, called him out for it in the dugout and the clubhouse, saying he didn't know how to play the game the right way. Jeter just brushed it off and... After the season, Curtis was off the Yankees. In the meantime, Jeter and Rodriguez were just part of a new generation of players, and they were too alike not to have some sort of bond. Well, first things first, how did you two meet? How did you get to be such good friends? My experience with Derek early on was actually uh, way before Seattle. It was when I was uh, a junior in high school. It was overwhelming seeing a young, skinny kid with brown skin just like me uh, from Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'm like, where the heck is Kalamazoo, Michigan? 
the next spring, uh, he actually was down in Fort Lauderdale for spring training playing with the Yankees. I was still in high school, and uh, Michigan was playing at the University of Miami. University of Michigan was down there playing. That's the first time I actually met him in person, and, and the initial reaction was, this guy's huge. You know, he was big. Early on, we, we were friends. The, the bond was it's baseball, right? That's what sort of drew us together. You guys were talking a second. What do you say during the game to each other? Well, if I ever get jammed or anything, He'll be the first one to say, oh, you really hit that ball hard. Way to hit it. You know, you did a good job. Rodriguez with a diving stop. What a play. So, you know, that's the kind of friend he is. Alex Rodriguez robbing his good buddy. Derek. In retrospect, the narrative that would define their whole careers were already present in 1996. For Jeter, team success and big playoff performances. For A-Rod, gaudy individual numbers and team disappointment. But at the time, nobody knew the future, and the possibilities open to both Jeter and Rodriguez were vast. I'm John. I'm James. We're the Lefty Specialists. And this is the A-Rod Chronicles. Chapter 2. The Crest of a Wave. The late 1990s were an exciting time to be a major league shortstop. Before the start of the 1997 season, Jeter and A-Rod posed for the cover of Sports Illustrated with a headline that heralded, The Finest Group of Shortstops Since World War II. That Sports Illustrated issue would become more famous for a photo inside the magazine, which featured Jeter, Rodriguez, and three other young shortstops, all without their shirts on. John made me re-record that line because allegedly the first time I recorded it with too sexy a voice. (laughs) All without their shirts on. <laughs> Why they took their shirts off for this photo shoot is a bit of a mystery. <laughs> it was on a Miami Beach rooftop, and supposedly it was a really hot day. But whenever the story gets told, nobody ever really says whose idea it was for them to go shirtless. It seems like it was kind of an organic thing. But the photographer, the longtime sports photojournalist Walter Yost Jr., has said it was A-Rod who was the first one to take his off, and then the other four followed suit. What's really funny to me about this photo is that none of them look especially good without their shirts on, the way you would expect like athletes posing shirtless to look. They all look kind of awkward and they're wearing gold chains. Mostly they just look young, really, which I guess is the whole point of the story. John can't appreciate some young studs in white pants, but that's another story. (laughs) I can appreciate it. I just don't think they really pull it off. (laughs) Other than A-Rod and Jeter... The photo featured Ray Ordonez of the New York Mets, Edgar Renteria of the Florida Marlins, and Alex Gonzalez of the Toronto Blue Jays. Ordonez had just finished fifth in the NL Rookie of the Year, based entirely on excellent defense at short, and the sense was that if he could ever even be a half-decent hitter, his glove was so valuable that he'd be a great player. But, alas, he never could and only ever had one season where he was worth more than one win above a replacement player. Renteria finished second in the Rookie of the Year voting in 96, and while he never became a superstar, he had the best career of the non-Jeter, non-A-Rod guys in this photo. Playing 16 years, getting the World Series winning hit in 1997, and even winning World Series MVP in 2010. 
Yeah, who don't forget that 2010 season. Alex Gonzalez, who actually looks the best in the photo, if you ask me, also had a decent career, but was destined to spend it being confused with the other Alex Gonzalez, who was four years younger than him, but was also a light-hitting, slick-fielding shortstop who would eventually play for the Toronto Blue Jays. Indeed, if you actually look at the baseball reference similarity score, the player who is third most similar to Alex Gonzalez is the other Alex Gonzalez. Even though we know now the endings for these guys, there was just this feeling of excitement and possibility around the shortstop position specifically at that time. And this wasn't even all of them in the photo. In fact, the best shortstop in 1997 wasn't even in this photo or mentioned in the piece. That was Nomar Garcia Parra, who had only been called up by the Boston Red Sox late in 1996, and he would put together his own historic rookie campaign in 97. 30 home runs, 22 stolen bases, he led the league in hits and triples, won the Rookie of the Year award unanimously, like Jeter, but he actually finished 8th in MVP voting that year also. As the other guys from the photo faded, Garcia Parra would take place alongside Jeter and Rodriguez. Those three would be the real troika of young shortstops in the late 90s. It's interesting when you look back, I mean, when, when Jeter and Nomar were young players, and Alex Rodriguez as well, they were featured on the covers of magazines, the three great shortstops, the three great offensive shortstops of that era. And uh, Nomar was right there with the other two for the first half of Jeter's career, certainly. Nomar hit 372 in the big leagues, the right-handed hitter. Uh, every bit as good and as talented as Derek Jeter. Before we get back to A-Rod specifically, it's worth pausing a little more on the shortstop renaissance because I think it's useful context. Why was there so much focus on young shortstops in the 90s? Well, part of it was just that you had an influx of amazingly talented young players at that position. Another part of it, I suspect, was the afterglow of Cal Ripken Jr. When Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's consecutive games played record in 1995, which is often credited with bringing baseball back after the strike, he brought some new glory to the position. But more than just a streak, he redefined how the position was conceived. Ripken was way bigger than shortstops ever were, 6'4", 200 pounds. Before Ripken, shortstops were defensive players and spark plugs. If you look at players in the Hall of Fame, the absolute best shortstops were guys like Phil Rizzuto, Alan Trammell, Ozzie Smith, and Pee Wee Reese. Absolutely insane that you put Phil Rizzuto first on the list, by the way. Look at the list, John. It's not very long. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a short list, but Phil Rizzuto should not be ahead of those other guys. I, I didn't mean that as a ranking. It was just a, a, a representative sample. All right, fair enough. <laughs> but career summaries for these guys always include words like defense, joy, or leadership. But Ripken was a new breed. He hit for average and power and dominated all facets of the game. Among Hall of Fame shortstops, he was just the second to hit 30 home runs in a season. The first, the legendary Ernie Banks, was moved to first base after just eight seasons. Ripken, on the other hand, stayed at short for a decade, decade and a half, became one of the best players of both the 80s and the 90s, won multiple MVPs, and yes, he played great defense and provided commendable leadership. By the time he set his famous consecutive games record, Ripken had opened up people's ideas of what a shortstop could be. And in the mid-90s, the generation that had grown up watching Ripken was coming of age. One of those guys was our hero, Alex. 
Well, I mean, I came up idolizing and, and admiring Cal Ripken. Um, like him, I think a lot of people growing up questioned whether we were too big or not to play shortstop. And uh, I know that I used it as a great challenge, and I looked at Cal. And I always said to myself, if Cal can do it, so can I. And, uh, you know, thank God for that. And, you know, growing up, I had a poster in uh, my bedroom of him. And he's always been my favorite and my mother's favorite. But another part of the shortstop renaissance, one that's hard to precisely quantify but impossible to ignore, is how it reflected the changing face of the game. In the 1990s, baseball saw a surge of Latin American players. In 1989, Latino players were only 13% of Major League Baseball, not much higher than the share they'd held since the mid-60s. But by 2000, they were nearly 25% of the league. In 1993, they passed African Americans as a share of the league and have been ahead of them ever since. And just as black players in the post-integration era changed the way the game was played, Latin American players grew the talent pool and expanded the kinds of things people could expect on the field. Alex Rodriguez and those other guys in that Sports Illustrated photo, who were all, apart from Jeter, of Latin American descent, they were examples of that. But if you look at that photo, it also shows the diversity within the growing Latin American contingent. After all, Latin America is a huge place and represents a vast amount of experiences, as these guys show. Ray Ordonez was born and raised in Cuba and defected in his 20s. Alex Gonzalez was Cuban-American and grew up in Miami. He actually went to the same high school as Alex Rodriguez. Rodriguez, of course, was Dominican, as we detailed in Chapter 1. Edgar Renteria was Colombian and had been signed as a 16-year-old when he was still in Barranquilla. And Nomar was from California, of Mexican descent. To those guys, you could also add Miguel Tejada in Oakland, who was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, and Omar Vizquel in Cleveland, who was Venezuelan, as well as the other Alex Gonzalez, for what it's worth. And Jose Valentin in Milwaukee, he was Puerto Rican. You can get a sense here of the variety of experiences that this new influx of Latin American players had. And whenever something like this happens, that is, whenever there's a new influx into the labor force of an industry, it's exciting. After all, new workers bring more talent, new skills, new abilities, and this can lead to a surge in productivity. For fans, it's fun. And, at least at first, even the owners benefit, as a growing labor supply usually means cheap new talent. And at this point in our story, that's what these Latin American players were. Cheap new talent. Fun, exciting, often historically unprecedented talent, but cheap new talent nonetheless. So what does this have to do with A-Rod? Well, for one, it's a reminder that, as exceptional as he was, Alex Rodriguez was part of a class. Even if A-Rod was the best of the bunch, he was still part of several trends that had material causes and impacted a whole generation of players. Things like the liberalization of American immigration laws in 1965 and the globalization of American sports, all of which help explain why a whole class of these guys entered the league around the same time. But also... It illustrates why people were generally rooting for A-Rod, at least in the late 90s. He and the other young shortstops of that era were symbols of possibility as baseball was undergoing several major transitions, including this globalization of the game, which attracted new talent and new fans from all over the world. 
A-Rod's 1997 season saw a dip in his production. Actually, all the guys from that photo saw their numbers drop a little bit from the previous year. I don't know if the ma- it was the magazine's curse or whatever, but since Rodriguez's numbers had been most historic in 96, he had the farthest to fall. His batting average fell by nearly 60 points. His slugging fell by 135. Even his defense suffered a little, according to the advanced metrics. But the Mariners weathered this sophomore slump pretty well, actually, thanks to great seasons from two of A-Rod's teammates. First, Randy Johnson, who had missed most of 1996 due to injury, returned to form in 97, winning 20 games and striking out 291 batters. And then there was Griffey, who followed up his near-MVP 96 season with an even better 1997 season that finally earned him that award, even winning it unanimously. Junior led the American League in runs, RBIs, and home runs, finishing with 56, just five short of the then-record 61. Here comes the 3-0 pitch to Junior. He swings and a high fly ball belted. Green to the track for Wall. Number 56. Fly, fly away. 3-0 Junior just through sheer brute force. Throw one over the National League side of the scoreboard. And Ken Griffey Jr. has his 56th. So Ken Griffey Jr. with number 56, RBI number 146. In some ways, Rodriguez's step back in 1997 helped restore the old pecking order in Seattle. Once again, the team was led by the same stars who had led them to the playoffs in 95, Griffey, Johnson, and Edgar Martinez. It's going too far to call 1997 Alex a role player. He was the fourth best player on the team and worth almost six wins above replacement. But it was the older core that brought them back to the postseason. And so the Mariners matched up with the Baltimore Orioles in the American League Division Series. For A-Rod, it would be his first postseason as a starter. Remember, in 95, he'd only had two at-bats. So how would Alex Rodriguez perform in his first playoff test? How would this player, whose ability to perform in the clutch, or lack thereof, would come to define so much about his persona, come out in this crucible? Fine. He did fine. He went 5 for 16 with a home run and a double. You couldn't say he slumped. He had the best batting average of any Mariner who played all four games. His OPS and slugging reached third among starters. But you also couldn't really say he had any big hits. His home run came when the Mariners were already losing 9-2 to in the ninth inning of Game 1. The only time he really came up in a big spot was the sixth inning of Game 2 with the tying run on second. He struck out, and then the next inning, the Orioles broke the game open. But you couldn't really blame A-Rod for the Mariners' loss. The guys who really underperformed were the trio that had led Seattle all season long. Randy Johnson, who lost both of his starts, giving up eight runs over 13 innings. Edgar Martinez, who went three for 16. And Griffey, who was two for 15 with no extra base hits. The Orioles really were just a better team in 1997, and it wasn't a particularly close series. The division series in general is just one of those weird baseball things. As a best-of-five series, it's too short to really draw big statistical conclusions from, but it's long enough that any starter is going to do something that will stick in a fan's head, whether that's a bad strikeout or a big hit. That makes it especially vulnerable to weird narratives about clutchness and momentum swings and grit, and all of that will eventually come to haunt A-Rod. But in 1997, all that was still ahead of him. In 1998, A-Rod rebounded from the mini-sophomore slump he had in 1997. He played in all but one game for the Mariners, led the league in hits, and set the record for home runs hit by a shortstop. He also joined the 40-40 club. That's 40 home runs and 40 stolen bases in the same season. He was just the third guy ever to do it and the first ever infielder. Jose Canseco had done it in 1988, his MVP season, 
and Barry Bonds had done it in 1996. A two-time batting champion like Martinez. Here goes Rodriguez, and he's got it. He's got 40 stolen bases. Two more home runs, and he'll join Bonds and Canseco in the most elite baseball fraternity. It's the 40-40 club. That's a, he's setting such high standards for himself at such an early age. You might notice that both of those guys are also associated with steroids, as is Alex Rodriguez, of course. Two quick points about this. First, it's interesting that one of the stats most associated with steroid guys involves speed as much as power. That's just really a reminder that the reputed effects of steroids are likely very different from the actual effects of steroids. But also with the reminder that steroids just generally haunt our memory of that 1998 season, since Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, who each passed Roger Maris's 61 home run mark that year, would later be tied to PEDs. But we shouldn't let that taint what was a very charmed time for baseball. 1998 is remembered as quote-unquote the steroid era, but you had things that had nothing to do with steroids in that season as well. Rodriguez's teammate, Griffey, who has never been tied to steroids, also made a run at Maris's record, although McGuire and Sosa eclipsed him. 1998 also saw the end of Cal Ripken's consecutive game streak, and not to mention a historic run by the New York Yankees. Which brings us back to Derek Jeter and the others in A-Rod's class of shortstops. As mentioned, by 1998, Jeter, A-Rod, and Nomar Garciaparra were emerging as the trio to watch from the wave of young stars of the mid-90s. Nomar's emergence had helped turn the Red Sox around as they made the playoffs for the second time in nine years. But it was Jeter and the Yankees who were the class of the American League. The Yankees had won the World Series in Jeter's rookie season, but they hadn't made it any further than Seattle in the 97 postseason. It was in 1998 that they emerged as a real dynasty, setting the American League record for wins and winning their second of four championships in five years. Jeter ended up finishing third in the MVP voting that year, and Nomar was second, actually, while Alex finished down at ninth, even though, from a strictly statistical standpoint, he was slightly better than both of them that year. And this is really where that whole Jeter wins, A-Rod collects stats narrative starts to cement itself. Because for as good as Rodriguez and Griffey were that season, the Mariners spent exactly one day over 500. That was a Wednesday in May, right before losing in Detroit. Less than a month later, they were 10 and a half games back of first place, and they never really got much closer than that. They finished 76 and 85, which wasn't terrible, but was certainly a disappointment after winning the division the previous year. The problem was the pitching. They still had the fourth best offense in the league, but the bullpen was terrible, and Randy Johnson, who had carried Seattle's staff for most of the 90s, was traded at the deadline. And he also kind of quit on the team that year, but... Randy Johnson's feud with Seattle management is a whole other story that we're going to have to gloss over for our purposes. If you want to see a stark contrast, look at Johnson's splits between Seattle and Houston in 1998. But anyway, 1999 saw more of the same from Seattle. Their record was a little better and they were in contention for longer, but the underlying numbers were actually worse. Their offense was no longer dominant. It was actually closer to league average, thanks to a down year from Griffey and uh, injuries from A-Rod causing him to miss a few games. The pitching was better than it had been a year before, but still not good enough to carry the team. Meanwhile, Derek Jeter led the Yankees to yet another dominant season and an even more dominant postseason, losing only once en route to his third World Series. Thanks to all of this winning, Jeter was emerging as the biggest star among the young shortstop, even if A-Rod was the better player. And he said, I'm sorry, 
I'm the better player. And I said, of course you are. Everybody knows you are. And he wasn't being egotistical. He was being correct. That couldn't be further from the truth. Um, there wasn't never that type of competition about who's better or this is better. We, we wanted to make our teams great. We wanted to be great. But it's stuff like that where people, I believe, really got off on trying to drive a wedge between Derek and I. At the beginning, you have this kind of innocent climb. Once you get a little bit too high, people then want to get two brothers and split them apart. You can compare statistics all you want. So, uh, you know, I didn't care who hit more home runs, who had more RBIs, who had more stolen bases. I, I compared who won more. Hey, we won. That was it. After the 1999 season, the unthinkable happened to Seattle. Ken Griffey Jr. asked for a trade. Why he did this is something of a mystery. The golfer Payne Stewart, who lived near the Griffey family in Orlando, died in a plane crash that October, and Griffey claimed that that brush with mortality made him want to live closer to his family. But it was a little strange because he has to be sent to Cincinnati, which you might know is 900 miles from Orlando. It's true, Orlando doesn't have a baseball team of its own, but he could have requested a trade to the Marlins or Devil Rays, who are both in Florida. Some people thought it was a bogus excuse and wondered if there was a rift between Griffey and the Mariners. Michael Wilbon, who was then a columnist at the Washington Post, wrote a whole column calling bullshit on the dead golfer excuse. John Boys in his History of the Seattle Mariners video, or I, I guess it's John Boys and Alex Rubenstein together, but in their video series, they suggest that he just really didn't want to play in Safeco Field. Yeah, we, we should mention that this was the first year of Safeco Field, which turned Seattle from a very hitter-friendly park, which they played in under the kingdom, to a pitcher-friendly park, which is what Safeco was. But part of the explanation is probably much simpler. Seattle is far. The closest American League city to Seattle is Oakland, which is still 900 miles away. So basically every road trip for the Mariners involves a four-hour flight. By contrast, Cincinnati doesn't have a single divisional opponent more than 400 miles away. You can get most places in two hours. Plus, Griffey grew up there and he still had family there, so you sort of get it. Whatever the reason, Griffey's decision left the Mariners in real dire straits. They'd already had two consecutive losing seasons. They lost Randy Johnson the year before. Edgar Martinez was about to turn 37, no spring chicken. And they finally moved to Safeco Field, which seemed designed to suppress the vaunted Mariners lineup. And now Griffey was gone. That left A-Rod in a position to carry the team. And carry them he did. Rodriguez turned in arguably his best season in 2000. We're going to end up saying that about a lot of seasons. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of seasons that are arguably his best seasons, but 2000 is up there. He turned in a 10.4 war season for the first time ever, according to baseball reference. It was a classic A-Rod season. He did not lead the league in any major statistical category, thanks in part to an injury that cost him 14 games. But he was among the leaders in almost everything. He was 7th in on-base percentage, 5th in slugging, 2nd in runs scored, 6th in total bases, 4th in home runs, and 2nd in defensive war. He walked 100 times for the first time in his career. And on the backs of this performance, the Mariners jumped from scoring 5.3 runs per game in 99 to 5.6 in 2000. This in spite of playing the full year at the aforementioned Safeco Field and losing Ken Griffey Jr., more importantly, they won 91 games, which, believe it or not, was the most in franchise history to that point. They finished a half game behind Oakland for the AL West title, but were good enough to snag the wild card and return to the postseason for the first time in three years. In the first round, they matched up with the Chicago White Sox, who'd finished with the best record in the American League that season. 
And I was going to make a joke about that, but look up that 2000 Chicago White Sox roster. It's incredible. Justice for the 2000 White Sox, man. It was a typical division series in that it was classic and stupid. Every game was close. The Mariners trailed in all three, but still managed to sweep the series in somewhat forgettable fashion. They won game three on the rare walk-off bunt. Drag bunt. There it is. The Mariners have won. Alex's performance was pretty forgettable. 4 for 13 with no walks or extra base hits. But he did have two RBIs, which in the dumb short division series like this was enough to tie for the team lead. And in another big bunting moment in the ALDS, <laughs> in game three, he bunted to set up the tying run. I really, baseball was so weird back then. Did Lou Pinella really call for a bunt with A-Rod at the plate? I mean, Jesus Christ. You got to get the runner over. I, don't... I guess. I guess it worked. But it was in the next series when the Mariners would match up with Derek Jeter's Yankees that Rodriguez would really be tested. In 2000, the Yankees were a weird team. They had just won back-to-back championships and three in four years, but they had limped into the postseason going 5-16 and in September and finished off with only 87 wins. They only squeaked by Oakland in the division series, being outscored over the five games, yet holding on to win game five behind their bullpen. If people really believed in the Yankees' magic or their aura or their preternatural ability to just win, and Derek Jeter certainly seemed to, then this year was Exhibit A, because they were pretty mid, yet somehow they had made it to the ALCS. The Mariners actually had a better record than the Yankees that year, but since New York had won their division, they had home field advantage for the championship series. Still, the Mariners won game one, two to nothing, on the backs of a home run from A-Rod and six and two-thirds innings from Freddy Garcia. In game two, they had another great start from John Halama. Remember him? And they were up one to nothing going into the bottom of the eighth. The Yankees had not scored at all for the series' first 16 innings at home. The Mariners were six outs from winning the first two games on the road, but then the Yankees' bats woke up. Double, single, 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 sacrifice fly, single, double, single, home run. That last one was a homer by Jeter, and the Yankees were suddenly up 7-1. to one. They held on and evened the series going back to Seattle. In Seattle, the Mariners went cold. Not that they weren't getting chances, but they couldn't catch in. They were 3-for-22 with runners in scoring position in games 2-4. through four. And in game 4 itself, Roger Clemens pitched one of the best postseason games ever, throwing a one-hit shutout. And that put the Yankees up 3 games to 1. Midway through game 5, the Mariners were down 2-1 to one and on the verge of elimination. But then, in the bottom of the fifth, Alex Rodriguez came up with two runners on and knocked them both in. It was the first time the Mariners had scored multiple runs in an inning all series, and it put Seattle in the lead. A-Rod's hit was followed by back-to-back homers, and Seattle won 6-2 to to send the series back to New York. And then in Game 6, A-Rod turned in the best game of his, probably, life up to that point. He gave Seattle the lead with a double in the first. Then he led off the sixth with another double but was stranded on third as the Mariners failed to build on a one-run lead. That failure loomed large a couple of innings later when the Yankees erupted for six runs in the seventh inning to put themselves in a 9-4 to lead. But A-Rod wouldn't go down without a fight. He led off in the eighth inning like this. Meanwhile, this could be Alex Rodriguez's last at-bat as a Seattle Mariner, depending upon what happens in the offseason. And he drives one to deep left. Back near the wall and gone. Well, 
if that's the way he says goodbye, he does it with some style. What a game for A-Rod. They were still down 9-5, but that home run was a big one. It chased Orlando Hernandez, the Yankees starter from the game, and seemed to inject some life into the Seattle offense. Indeed, that inning, the Mariners tagged the great Mariano Rivera for two runs. The first postseason runs Rivera had given up in two years, ending his record-setting scoreless inning streak. Going into the ninth, Seattle had made a game out of it. It was 9-7 now. Rivera got the first two outs, bringing A-Rod up as Seattle's literal last chance, and he refused to make the final out. He eked out a single for his fourth hit of the game. He took second on defensive indifference, but was stranded there when Edgar Martinez grounded out to Alex's buddy Derek to end the game and send the Mariners home empty-handed. It was a bitter ending for the Mariners, but it seemed to cement A-Rod's status as a leader, and believe it or not, a clutch postseason performer. Overall, he'd gone 9-for-22 in the series with three walks, four extra base hits, including two home runs and a stolen base. He reached base in every game, led the team in every major offensive category, and he'd saved his best games for when the team was on the brink of elimination. This kind of playoff performance was the last box Alex needed to check before becoming the most prize-free agent in baseball history. Before we get to Alex Rodriguez's historic contract, though, we first need to make a detour into a very brief history of free agency in baseball. For most of the 20th century, as most baseball fans know, there was no free agency. Players were limited by the reserve clause. That meant a team reserved the rights to a player in perpetuity. If a player didn't like the salary he was offered, he could refuse to play or retire, but he couldn't entertain offers from other teams. This was, of course, merely a way to suppress player salaries, and it technically violated the Sherman Antitrust Act, but the Supreme Court granted baseball an exemption, first in 1922 and then again in 1953, stating that baseball was only an amusement and not interstate commerce. We should mention, at least briefly, that the first player to mount a significant opposition to the reserve clause was Kurt Flood, who in 1969 was traded from St. Louis to Philadelphia without his consent. And Flood's story, worth telling in its own right, probably deserves its own podcast, but the end result was that he lost his case, although he did help reorient Marvin Miller and the MLB Players Association towards trying to knock down the reserve clause for good. The first hint at what might happen to player salaries in the absence of the reserve clause came in 1974, when Catfish Hunter's contract was avoided because the athletics owner had failed to make an annuity payment. This made Hunter a free agent before the reserve clause came down. Yankees quickly signed him to a five-year, $3.5 million deal with a $1 million signing bonus, making him the highest paid player in baseball. Then in 1975, the reserve clause was finally struck down in a decision by arbitrator Peter Seitz over two players who had played the 75 season without a contract. Seitz ruled that this ended their obligation to the team, and they were now free to negotiate with any team that wanted them. The owners appealed the decision, but the courts upheld the ruling, and eventually Miller and the union negotiated a version of free agency to commence after the 1976 season. When the arbitrator finally agreed with the union that an owner could only control a player for one year. The time had come to negotiate a whole new system, and the owners panicked. They could not picture living under a system in which every player would be a free agent every year. Miller shrewdly offered the owners what seemed on the surface a compromise. 
players would not be eligible for free agency until they had played six years. The owners gratefully agreed. At least they could still control their most valuable assets for a time. But baseball would never be the same again. The law of supply and demand now favored the players. That first free agent class saw a bunch of big deals, led by Reggie Jackson, who signed a five-year, $3 million deal with the Yankees. Salaries kept going up, exposing just how underpaid players had been under the reserve clause system. In 1979, Nolan Ryan became the first player to get over $1 million per year, signing with the Astros for three years and $3.5 million. A year later, Dave Winfield signed a mammoth 10-year deal that began with a $1.3 million salary, but included costs of living increases that ultimately made it worth about $23 million over 10 years. Here's Winfield and Jackson talking about what that was like. Dave Winfield becomes the highest paid athlete in sports today. There's only one problem with making the most money. When you, 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 you're harnessed up and you're the team that pulls the cart, your fanny sticks up the highest and you feel the whip more often, right? That's right. And all eyes are on you. get whipped a little more often. If you can handle it, you got a big fanny. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I can handle it. But then the salary growth basically just stopped. Going into the 1981 season, Winfield was the game's highest paid player, earning roughly $2.3 million per year, at least if you annualize his whole contract. And going into 1989, eight years later, the highest paid player was made, made roughly $2.6 million a year. That's only a very slight increase over those eight seasons. Because the 1980s were marked by collusion among owners to keep salaries down. They refused to bid against each other for players, and a commissioner, Peter Ubaroff, openly told owners not to offer players long-term deals, which effectively undid free agency. In 1985, for example, George Steinbrenner offered Carlton Fisk a contract, but then withdrew it days later when the owner of Fisk's old team, Jerry Reinsdorf, called him to complain. In 1986, average player salaries actually went down for the first time since free agency started. Teams even briefly shrunk roster sizes so that players had to compete for fewer jobs. Overall, the Players Association filed three different grievances against the owners during the 1980s, and they won all three, which and eventually settled for $280 million to give you a scale of the wage theft going on in the 80s. Then Commissioner, the guy who replaced Ubroff, Faye Vincent, he told owners that they stole $280 million from players and the players were deservedly pissed. Yeah, The owners hated Vincent since he was a commissioner who seemed to care more about the sport than the wealth of the owners, which is a huge no-no for someone in that job. I feel like every 40 or so years, the owners hire a commissioner who just like doesn't really get the role uh, and actually likes baseball. This happened with Happy Chandler, uh, who was potentially pushed out of the job for being too pro player and too supportive of integration in the 40s and 50s. Anyway, Vincent was ran out of the job after just a few years. And once the dust settled on the collusion scandal, player salary growth resumed. Going into the 1989 season, no player earned more than $3 million per year. But midway through 1990, Jose Canseco signed a deal worth $4.7 million per season over five years. Just a couple years later, Barry Bonds signed a six-year deal with San Francisco that paid him nearly $7.3 million per season. Then... Two things happened in the mid-90s to take player salaries to another level. First, the owners' attempts to impose a salary cap failed when the players went on strike in 1994. 
You can see here the pattern of the owner's reaction to free agency. First, to collude. Then when they got caught doing that, they tried to impose a hard cap, provoking a labor fight. But the other thing that began in the mid-90s was the rise of the regional sports networks, or RSNs. RSNs are the cable channels that carry local sports teams' games. The first one started back in the 1970s, but it was only with the mass adoption of cable television that they really changed the business model of pro sports. Because before that, sports were basically a live events business. Sure, there was revenue in radio and merchandise and stuff, but for the most part, teams made money by selling tickets to games. Once you had channels willing to pay for the rights for all a team's games, that was a massive new source of revenue, and now suddenly teams were also in the cable TV business. So when the two sides reached a collective bargaining agreement after the 94-95 strike, there was so much new money pouring into the game that some of it was bound to make it to the players. And you can see this in the way the title of highest paid player in baseball kept getting reset. Before the 1996 season, Ken Griffey Jr. signed for $8.5 million per year. After that year, Albert Bell got up to $11 million. Then Barry Bonds passed Bell before spring training ended. After that season, Pedro Martinez got up to $12.5 million. Then a year later, Mike Piazza, Mo Vaughn, and Kevin Bra Brown all passed him. Brown's deal, which was negotiated by Scott Boris, was a milestone. At $15 million over seven years, he was the first guy to cross $100 million in total value. Man, Scott Boris is an incredible agent. <laughs> <laughs> really is. He becomes the first $100 million player in baseball, and yes, the price of poker has gone up drastically. Just over two years ago, Albert Bell became the game's first $50 million player. There was an uproar then, but the money keeps flowing. Former A's GM Sandy Alderson, who's now working in the commissioner's office, called Brown's deal an affront to baseball. To put all this in perspective, remember, going into the 1989 season, the highest paid player in baseball made $2.63 million per year. Ten years later, the highest paid guy made $15 million, almost six times as much. And that was the environment in which Alex Rodriguez found himself entering free agency. It was an amazing confluence of events. An unusually talented player who played an unusually high profile and an in-demand position, becoming a free agent at the unusually young age of 25 at a time of unprecedented growth in player salaries. Everybody knew A-Rod was going to reset the scale. The only question was where he would go and what the final number would be. Because of this, nobody really expected Rodriguez to re-sign with the Mariners. He had refused to even negotiate an extension with Seattle before the 2000 season, and while they reportedly offered him $95 million over five years, nobody really expected him to take that, not even Seattle. The obvious suitor was the New York Mets. They were coming off a World Series run, and they had a glaring hole at shortstop. Their young phenom, Ray Ardonez, remember him from the Sports Illustrated photo? He had never really developed into a competent hitter, and he had been injured for most of the 2000 season anyway. They had to rely on an aging Mike Bordick for much of that year. And in general, their offense was below league average, not running much deeper than Mike Piazza. Plus, it was getting a little old. A-Rod would solve all these problems without compromising the team's defense. Plus, Alex had grown up a Mets fan, and bringing him to New York would give the Mets a way to compete with the dominant Yankees, both on the field and off in terms of star power. But it was too good to be true. Shortly after the negotiations began, Mets general manager Steve Phillips publicly broke them off, announcing that the Mets would not even make Rodriguez an offer. 
His explanation was that Boris's demands for A-Rod would create a, quote, 24 plus one man roster. The Mets leaked all kinds of details about the perks that Boris and Rodriguez had requested, like his own office at Shea Stadium and a guarantee that the Mets put him on more billboards than Derek Jeter. Were any of these demands actually true? Possibly. Boris was known to make pitches based on the marketability of his clients, and he reportedly prepared a pitch that compared A-Rod to Leonardo da Vinci. It's certainly possible perks like this were discussed. But given what we now know about the Wilpons and their perennial stinginess with the Mets, it seems far more likely that they balked at the total price Rodriguez wanted and just didn't feel like saying that. It's worth noting that most of the perks Rodriguez allegedly requested were not in the contract he eventually signed. But for a minute there, it looked like maybe A-Rod wouldn't get the massive haul he was looking for. The Mets and Mariners were out. The Yankees and Red Sox already had short stops. The Dodgers and White Sox were looking to shed salary, not add it. So who was left? Perhaps he would have to lower his demands. But then, on December 14th, 2000, the Texas Rangers announced that they were signing Alex Rodriguez for 10 years and $252 million dollars by far the biggest contract ever. The Rangers hadn't even been on most people's radar for teams to sign Rodriguez, but owner Tom Hicks seemed eager to make a splash after a disappointing 2000 season. More to the point, the Rangers had just signed their own 10-year $250 million deal with Fox Sportsnet in October 1999, which was how they could afford to offer A-Rod more than Hicks had paid to purchase the entire team in 1998 when he bought them from the old George W. Bush ownership group. Man, that guy was great at anticipating the future. (laughs) (laughs) The 252 amount seemed oddly specific, but it had a symbolic value. It was exactly twice as big as the previous biggest contract in North American sports history, Kevin Garnett's $126 million deal with the Minnesota Timberwolves. This was the apex of the player salary boom of the late 90s. Not that player salaries stopped going up, but the top line numbers, the highest paid player category, stopped increasing. Put it this way, in 2001, Rodriguez's salary was 67% higher than the highest salary from the previous season. How long would it take for that number to go up by 67% again? 21 years. It wasn't (laughs) until Max Scherzer signed a deal for $43.3 million per year last offseason in 2021 (laughs) that the highest paid player made 67% more than Rodriguez made in 2001. That's not even factoring in the Biden inflation. Yeah, yeah. we forgot to put in the Biden economics of this. Yeah. Indeed, the 25.2 number would stand as the highest salary for seven years longer than any salary had been the highest since free agency began. And the first person to break that number was Alex Rodriguez when he re-signed with the New York Yankees. (laughs) Indeed, nobody would make more than him until Clayton Kershaw broke the $30 million barrier in 2014. Alex Rodriguez was the crest of a wave. He set the salary ceiling that would last a decade and a half. And every player benefited from that. 10-year deals and $20 million salaries no longer seemed ridiculous. Even if Rodriguez's deal would always be an outlier, it was an outlier that shifted money and power towards the players. The owners, and to some degree the fans and the public, would never forgive A-Rod for that.
Chapter 2 brings us to the end of the 2000 season. We talk a little bit about it in the episode, but I think we've actually undersold what might be A-Rod's best season that year. In his age 24 season, he had his highest ever B-War at 10.4. It was his best defensive season by Defensive War. He measured a 2.4 by that metric. And it was the only time he ever would reach 100 walks in a season. Anyway, by the end of his time in Seattle, uh, his home run total was at 189, and his career wins above replacement had reached 38.1. The A-Rod Chronicles is an undrafted production brought to you by us, the Lefty Specialists, written, edited, and produced by the Lefty Specialists. Music composed by Lonnie Ginsberg. Until next week. Mm-hmm.